For Cade Falchik, read politics and letters, where I talk to writers about their books on politics and or literature. On this episode, I'm talking to Conor McCarthy about the life and work of the Palestinian literary critic and activist Edward Said. Conor McCarthy is a senior lecturer at Maynooth University, and he's written two books, most germanely for the purpose of this interview, The Cambridge Introduction to Edward Said, but also Modernisation, Crisis and Culture in Ireland, a critical study of the responses of Irish intellectuals to modernity and development from the late 60s to the early 90s. He's also edited a collection of the anti-imperialist writing of the Republican Socialist James Connolly for Edinburgh University Press, and I very much recommend that you check out any and all of these books if you're interested in following up on any of the topics which came up in the course of the interview. I started off by asking Connor to provide a rundown of Edward Said's family background or early life and what it was that first brought him to the study of literature. Yeah, Edward Said was... Um, he lived most of his youth in Cairo, as you say, but he, uh, he was born in Jerusalem in 1935. He was born in West Jerusalem to Palestinian parents. Um, his father was uh, a pretty successful Palestinian businessman who ran quite a large uh, and I believe quite important stationery company with branches in Beirut and in Cairo as well as in Jerusalem. And uh, Edward initially went to schools in Jerusalem and uh, in 1947 the family left Jerusalem, West Jerusalem, uh, an area that they've been living in called Talbiya. They left Jerusalem for the last time, uh, so that's a year before the emergence of the State of Israel in 1948, and they moved uh, pretty much permanently to Cairo. Um, Said's background, as I say, was pretty sort of unimpeachably um, middle class or bourgeois or upper middle class. I mean, the family was quite wealthy. Um, uh, Wadia Said had um, in the 19-teens uh, emigrated to the United States, I'm pretty sure to avoid or evade the Ottoman army draft, the Ottoman Turkish army draft. And in fact, in the United States, uh, where he spent some years, he eventually joined the United States Army, and he served with the American Expeditionary Forces during the First World War. And in a way that I can't specify, I'm not sure if it's in the Brennan biography, um, because of that army service, because of that living in the United States, Wadia Said became an American citizen. So when young Edward, um, who appears to have had a fractious relationship with teachers in various schools that he attended, when he was finally expelled from Victoria College in Cairo, maybe around 1950, when he was 14 or 15, his parents took the option that they had, because Edward was entitled to American citizenship too, of simply sending him to boarding school in the United States. So that's how he ended up in the United States, and he completed his education in uh, an elite um, uh, school in Massachusetts called Mount Hermon, and then he went on to Princeton and Harvard. Uh, I think Said was, as I say, a fractious and at times unhappy student. Um, I don't think he always did that well in school. Um, he describes in his memoir, um, Out of Place, which he published in 1999, I think, um, having had, uh, particularly in Victoria College, a kind of stereotypical English or English colonial uh, education. So um, let's say, you know, his, his study of, of literature was of English literature. 
um, and um, he was more acquainted because of that with uh, classics and canonical figures from English literature than uh, anything to do with um, the literature or culture of the world in which he was still at, you know, at Victoria College living. However, it should be said that um, uh, in the memoir side made clear his evidently very intense and warm and important relationship with his mother and his mother um, of his parents um, seems to have represented, if you want, the world of culture and affect and emotion and tenderness and the aesthetic to him, where his father, Wadia, was a kind of disciplinarian and um, a fairly stern sort of patriarch who was interested in Edward getting a good job and possibly training to be a doctor. Um, but Edward Said's first cultural love was music, it was classical music. And in fact, he was taken to concerts um, by visiting and possibly Egyptian um, uh, orchestras in, in, in Victoria from a very young age, uh, in Cairo, excuse me, from a very young age. Um, and he was also, uh, he had intense one-to-one -one piano lessons. It's probably no other kind of piano lesson than a good one-to-one -one, one, but anyway. In particular, in his memoir, he uh, remembered a very brilliant um, Polish-Jewish teacher called Ignacy Tigerman, and uh, I think he actually had a, a relationship, a friendship with Tigerman um, right up until Tigerman's death in the 1950s. And Edward trained and practiced and took the piano very, very seriously. And definitely... Um, there was a phase when he'd finished his undergraduate degree at Princeton, um, where he eventually specialized in, in literature and philosophy. But there was a phase when uh, the potential for a career as a professional concert pianist was well open to him. It's ultimately, of course, an option that he didn't take. But music remained very important to him, um, as you'll know, right through his life. And um, it became more prominent in his writing in the last 20 years of his life. He became a music critic for The Nation, which is a, a venerable and often very good liberal left American magazine of some vintage. He became the nation's um, classical music critic in 1986. And he started publishing about music just a couple, publishing academically about music just a couple of years later when he gave his Wellick lectures on um, uh, on, on, on classical music. His taste in music was, as I say, very canonical European classical music. Um, it, was, it was never going to be... Um, it, I don't think he was that interested in, in, in musical modernism. Um, so he wasn't interested in, in European classical music experimentation of the 1920s or you know, that we'd associate with the world of Berg and Schoenberg and people like that. Um, and um, I would think that jazz and rock and roll and folk music were mostly off his register. They came to him through his children, um, to his family's amusement, but they were never tastes of his. When was it that Said first began thinking about Palestine politically and in what form does his activism initially take? And as well, did it ever open him up to criticism or even a certain amount of danger in his other public roles as a lecturer or as a literary journalist in, in more popular outlets? Said used to say that um, his first real piece of Palestine 
focused writing was an essay that he wrote, I think about 1968, definitely in the wake of the Six Day War, um, which he lived, he lived through the Six Day War um, as a Palestinian in New York, um, in a New York that he found that he experienced as being overwhelmingly supportive of the Israeli victory in the Six Day War. And in 68, I think, he wrote an essay called The Arab Portrayed. And the Arab portrait, although it uses a different kind of register and a different kind of vocabulary, clearly is in some ways the, not the root essay of Orientalism, but the first kind of writing um, about portrayals of Arab people and maybe Palestinians in particular uh, that, that he would produce. However, it's worth saying that um, in Tim Brennan's recent biography of um, uh, Said, by the time that Said would have written the Arab portrait, he was a he just received tenure at, Ken at Columbia University. He was now an established younger academic. Um, but Brennan's biography of Said shows that uh, the young man, as an, certainly as an undergraduate at Princeton, already had um, firmly held and uh, firmly articulated views on the Middle East and on the situation of Palestinians. They just weren't getting published, but he was quite prepared to debate these things, to argue them with um, friends or fellow students at Princeton and so on. So a feeling of um, a, a degree of politicization clearly had preceded the publication of any writing, but that's not a contradiction. Um, the writing really took off in the late 60s. But um, Columbia was big enough and New York is certainly big enough and various enough for him to have found some allies. He did have allies, including political allies, on the faculty at Columbia. And it should be said that, uh, nevertheless, you know, at, in, the, in the late 60s, the early 70s, he was mostly pursuing an increasingly successful, but if you want arguably conventional career as a rising professor of literature, publishing a great many essays on, in particular, on the then emerging Anglophone interest in French theory. Um, and... Uh, Obviously, some of that theory had a kind of political valence. I mean, you couldn't read a writer like Foucault without you know, getting a whiff of some kind of politics. And you might say that that eventually emerged explicitly in the Said in Orientalism, which some people still think is a Foucauldian book. Um, but, uh, yeah, for again, for, for a long time, Said used to use a phrase of himself that I think was used of Conrad, of Joseph Conrad, who of course was the focus for Said's PhD thesis, and he was a writer that he was obsessed with right through his life. And at one point people described, or someone described, or maybe Conrad himself described himself as a homo duplex. I presume that, that mean, her term means like a, a bipartite human being, a person with two lives. And Said, who in many ways identified in some ways with, um, with Conrad, Conrad, uh, Said saw himself in a, in, a, in, a, in a similar way as someone who on the one hand was pursuing uh, in some ways an unimpeachably professional and as I say rather conventional but very successful um, literary professorial career and on the other hand who you know, went back on holidays back home to no longer to Palestine but to, uh, to Cairo or to Beirut and who was interested in the politics of that part of the world and who after the late 1960s began to be began to write about that part of the world. Um, but for a long time, those two aspects of Said he kept quite firmly separate from each other, if you want. 
touch briefly on there about how Saeed was an early advocate for methods associated with uh, continental philosophy. The collection of thinkers most associated with what's referred to as the cultural turn in the study of literature, very simplistically the movement from an appreciative or belletrist new criticism to the dispensation we have today where the emphasis is very much on radical sociology or identity. What was the appeal of theory to Said, and what was the character of the opposition he faced in using it in his own criticism? Um, I think the appeal of theory was probably um, uh, novelty, new, more, in some very general sense, politicized ways of looking at literature. Said was never part of the... Um, the American literary critical um, establishment of the 50s. He was never a practitioner of the new criticism, um, which is a kind of, you know, as you know, a kind of rather unhistorical, intensely formalist, arguably aestheticist, arguably Kantian kind of criticism. Said's Conrad book was written under the influence of phenomenology and of um, a group called the, the Geneva School, who um, pressed um, ideas taken from Husserl and Heidegger and maybe to a lesser extent from the French existentialists into service in the study of literature. Now, mostly the Geneva School, whose main luminary was a writer called Georges Poulet, mostly the Geneva School, I think, um, were not that interested. They, they weren't pursuing an unovertly political criticism. But the, um, the watermark, if you like, of that initial interest in Geneva School criticism, which enabled Said on the one hand to evade, certainly to evo evade or avoid Levicism, to evade or avoid the new criticism, but also positioned him slightly differently in the world of complet, in that it, it didn't make him, although he was intensely admiring of the great tradition of philology, the great German romantic tradition of philology, it placed him slightly differently. And I suppose the background with the um, Geneva School criticism also made him always already open to new stands of European thought. In his memoir, he says that as a graduate student, he was already reading two major, but not closely related figures who remained important for him for the rest of his career. One was the sort of proto-historicist Italian um, uh, uh, philosopher and jurist of the 18th century, Gian Battista Vico, who remained a lifelong preoccupation and about whom he wrote essays, particularly in the 60s and the 70s. And the other was Georg Lukács, the Hungarian Marxist. Um, Said tells us that he was reading History and Class Consciousness, which you'll know is, the, is probably Lukács' masterpiece and certainly the major text of his early career. Um, and History and Class Consciousness and um, the early Lukács, and occasionally hints of the later Lukács, would pop up again at various points right across Said's career. In fact, my own kind of theory about Said's late reading of Adorno is that in some ways he was sort of late in his career. He was uh, Adorno came to maybe replace Lukács for him. This is something we might talk about more later. But it was as if he was um, you know, having been bitten and been infected by a Lukácsian disease. He was then inoculating himself with a dose of Adorno, um, la you know, later laterally in his career. Um, Said was very taken with the. Vichyan idea of the autodidact. So that site might be picking up a bit of Vico here or reading some Lukács there, largely, I would suspect, off his own bat. Um, that would be in character. Having said that, you know, when he first arrived in Colombia, 
Um, he made friends with people like um, Fred Dupuis and Lionel Trilling, um, who, uh, who were part of the ensemble that was called the New York Intellectuals. Um, some of the New York intellectuals who clustered around a, a, a journal called Partisan Review, some of them, including Dupuis, had a background in Trotskyism. In other words, they were on the far left, and um, Said was particularly friendly with Dupuis, and Dupuis is meant to have introduced Said to forms of activism that maybe he mightn't have experienced before. Um, so Said's positioning in regard to continental theory was always going to be, on the one hand, significant in that he was definitely uh, a processor and a mediator of French structuralism, post-structuralism into the United States, in particular the work of Foucault. Um, but his position, nevertheless, was always going to be somewhat uncomfortable. Um, Tim Brennan, who again is, I think, a very particularly telling and interesting uh, critic of Said, a friend, but also quite a stern critic at times, Brennan shows how in Said's first major theoretical book called Beginnings, which was published in 1975, on the one hand, Beginnings is deeply imbued with a fascination for and excitement about Foucault, Lévi-Strauss, uh, Bach. Um, at the same time, Beginnings makes almost frantic efforts to somehow reconcile the new French linguistic theory, or the new to Europeans French linguistic theory, with the great romance philological tradition that Said, as a comparatist, had been partially trained in. So Said is trying to reconcile, it's a, I say it slightly crudely, Erich Auerbach with Foucault. And these are not necessarily reconcilable figures, but they nevertheless, they represent sort of poles in his kind of critical or intellectual personality. The, the work that most people will know Said for is Orientalism, yes, yes. a study of the ways in which societies in West Asia and North Africa were by turns romanticized, caricatured, stereotyped, and in overall terms figured as uh, legitimate objects of domination from the West. So he conducted a series of close readings of important sources in which he regarded this ideology as, um, as most clearly manifesting itself. Could you talk a bit about the scope and content of Orientalism and how it was received both from the perspective of the pro-imperial hatchet jobs as well as the... Um, those, those coming from the more ostensibly left factions in the academy. Mm -hmm. And actually, I'm particularly interested in a comment you just made where you said that most people think that Orientalism is kind of a Foucauldian work. Yeah. Is that your registering of a disagreement there? Or? The way I first encountered Orientalism was that this was the best Foucauldian book that Foucault had not written. And in fact, rather shamefully, um, I don't want to go on about myself, but I first read Edward Said uh, when I was an undergraduate or a late undergraduate as a kind of more accessible gloss on Foucault, because Foucault is not always accessible, sometimes he's difficult, whereas Said, uh, even in his definitely academic work, has a kind of plain and mostly accessible style. He's rarely difficult to understand. Um, Orientalism, the, one of the funny things that has happened in regard to Orientalism is that when Orientalism, when the word is now used, capitalized, it's now mostly used to refer to a book by Edward Said. But Edward Said's book was actually about an academic discipline or, or, or sub-discipline that for a long time had um, legitima legitimacy in the, in the Western, including the American Academy. Um, one of the radical things that Said did in Orientalism was not only look at the genealogy of this academic discipline, which he brought back to the late 18th century, and the rise of um, 
modern linguistics and the association of um, uh, cultural or even national or ethnic attributes with certain language types or, 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 or language forms from Europe or from Middle Asia or elsewhere. Um, but one of the most radical things that Saeed did was not only to offer a kind of polemical, polemical account of this um, academic discipline from Herder to Bernard Lewis, let's say, Bernard Lewis being a contemporary of Saeed's and an enemy of his, um, but Said broadened the term Orientalism out into a much larger, more expansive, even baggy kind of usage. So for Said, um, not only had these venerable and often phenomenally erudite um, philologists and uh, linguistic scholars and historians of language that he was ostensibly focusing on, not only had they produced certain kinds of, let's face it, stereotypes, of people from near or middle Asia, but Said also found the same kind of rhetorical um, patternings in creative writers, notoriously in radicals like Karl Marx, in journalists and travel writers, um, in a whole, uh, in politicians, in sociologists and anthropologists. So in Said's hands, Orientalism became um, a kind of um, uh, uh, a very wide-ranging. Um, uh, critique of the rhetorics by which Europeans had described the Near East. There are marvelous passages in Orientalism, passages that I still, still think are magnificent, in particular where he discusses major French writers of the 19th century um, writing about their travels in the Orient. So I'm talking about passages about Nerval, about Chateaubriand, about um, um, Lamartine, and in particular about Flaubert. And they're magnificent literary discussions. But there's a great deal more as well. And um, I think that's probably both one of the book's um, strengths and one of the ways that it's weak or that it's certainly vulnerable, if you want. Um, critiques came of Orientalism thick and fast. Uh, historians felt that Said was practicing a kind of weak or at times ignorant history. Um, Foucauldians felt it wasn't Foucauldian enough. Marxists felt that um, he was um, offering a calumny on the reputation of Karl Marx. Um, uh, and Middle East um, area studies experts felt that Orientalism was simply a very um, uh, you know, elaborate uh, expression of Arab nationalism wrapped up in the new fancy jargon of structuralism or post-structuralism. Um, the most famous critiques, I think, um, would be uh, those of um, Orientalists like um, professional Orientalists who naturally, of course, wanted to defend their practice and defend their discipline, like Bernard Lewis. And I think the most famous, and I'll go back to Bernard Lewis in a second, the most famous um, critique from the left was the Marxist critique by the Indian writer Ijaz Ahmed, which uh, I still think has not been exceeded, although I have a lot of disagreements with the way that Ahmed wrote about Said, and I can come to that. For someone like Lewis, I think um, Said, by using the Foucauldian concept of a discourse, by which I understand the idea that, um, in a way, taken from uh, structures linguistics, Foucault basically says that um, um, academic disciplines, let's say, produce a body of ideas and a body of writing that has its own regularities, rules, consistencies, codes 
that supervene over the individuals who contribute to that uh, discourse and to some degree shape the individuals who contribute to that discourse. And for someone like Bernard Lewis, who I don't think was particularly interested in or trained in this uh, so-called new theory, what this amounted to was basically um, a kind of conspiracy theory against particular and no doubt extraordinarily um, learned and no doubt actually also personally humane and decent individual figures in the history of Orientalist scholarship, including no doubt himself as well, because there is polemic against Bernard Lewis at the end of Orientalism. Um, so Lewis was interested, people, Lewis and you know someone say writing after Lewis, like Robert Irwin, um, who's still alive and writing, um, uh, they, they basically see, they, they don't like the way that um, Orientalism appears to cluster and group and generalize about a group of apparently very individu individualistic writers or scholars. The critique from Ahmad is more interesting to me because I'm, I suppose, personally, um, you know, maybe a little bit closer to the left side of, of these things or to the left side of Saeed. Um, Ahmed felt that um, Saeed didn't really have a coherent theory of empire. Um, if he was suggesting that Orientalism was a discourse that legitimated and in some way or other participated in the cre you know, creation of imperial hegemonies, um, Ahmed felt that, uh, that uh, Saeed didn't really have any you know, fully worked up theory of, of, of imperialism. And although I would count myself as a kind of Saeed partisan, I think that Ahmed, in fact, is right. Um, Said um, is not a Marxist. He, to be fair to him, he um, has clarified, or he did clarify his positions vis-a-vis -vis Marxism, and he never claimed to be a Marxist. He was never an unspoken Marxist. But for me, one of one of my problems with with Said's writing would be that um, he didn't. Um, he could name check, and I'm sure he'd read some of, but he never really wanted to use the fertility and the richness of Marxist thinking about about empire from Lenin to David Harvey um, and uh, so I think that you know Ahmed was 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 annoyed and upset about that he didn't like the way that Said could sort of veer as he did um, from you know talking apparently positively you know about a kind of you know French Republican um, centrist um, denouncer of intellectuals like Julian Bender, and in the next sentence, um, you know, invoke Gramsci or, or or Raymond Williams or someone else like this. For Ahmad, this was simply um, uh, inconsistent, um, uh, and in some ways, I think again, I, I I give Ahmad. I think I think he probably is right that to some degree, Said is 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 uh, not consistent. Said in. Um, an essay published five years or six years after Orientalism came out called Secular Criticism, which is the lead essay in what I think is Said's best book. I don't think Orientalism is Said's best book at all. I think his best book is a collection of essays about literary critical politics called The World, The Text, and The Critic. And in the first essay of The World, The Text, and The Critic, Said says that he considered himself mostly to be, to be influenced most by Marxists, but not by Marxism. And by that, it's not that this is some kind of extraordinarily subtle um, distinction, but it's an important distinction. Said is saying that he's read and he feels he has learned from Marxists, from Gramsci and Lukács, and the, fir you know, the first generation of Western Marxism. And he's in fact, he's written about Marxism himself as well, um, or coming up to Raymond Williams or Frederick Jameson. Um, 
but he's not really interested in these people as being figures in a tradition, um, as representing a kind of lineage or you know, developmental story of thought. Um, and um, of course, the, you could say slightly against Said and slightly ironically that if he was, inter if he was interested in the internal co continuities and and uh, you know uh, super individual um, uh, uh, lineages of Orientalism, he wasn't particularly interested in these things when it came to Marxism. Said felt that um, and he says in Secular Criticism he 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 felt that. Uh, that a Marxism, an academic Marxism practiced in the American Academy was just going to be academic because it was not in, in, involved in some kind of, now he said this without sort of maybe arguing for it, although I think he was to some degree probably right. A Marxism inside the Academy in America, as far as Said was concerned, was not going to be or was going to struggle to be related to an actual politics on the street or of the um, trades union movement or of the, the labor movement beyond the academy. And I suppose he felt that, um, uh, you know, for a Marxist criticism to be properly true to itself, it would need to have that affiliation. Um, Said was not above also offering, I suppose you'd say, really more a liberal kind of argument saying that, you know, that to, to identify, for him to identify particularly or purely with Marxism was him to foreclose on other radical uh, intellectual traditions and you know at that point he would invoke someone like Noam Chomsky who's unquestionably a figure of the left but is not and never was a Marxist. Chomsky's an anarchist um, and indeed on one or two occasions Said professed a kind of uh, sympathy for, for anarcho-syndicalism um, although it's never developed. So um, uh, on the one hand I think that where I think that Ahmed really has Said is uh, when it comes to empire, and empire is very important for Said, there's no doubt about that. Um, but Said can't really explain why European power from the 1500s to the 21st century has wanted to project itself into other parts of, of, of the globe, of the global south. Um, and in fact, personally, I have an argument that um, that, that that the lack of the either the lack of interest in the Marxist uh, tradition of explaining that uh, pattern, or the lack of intellectual equipment inside for uh, explaining it, is in some ways attributable to things that emerge as early as the Conrad um, and Phenomenology book. Because of course, nowadays, partly because of Edward Said, although not only because of him, you know, we think of Conrad as the writer about empire, the creative writer about empire par excellence. And yet Said could write a book about Joseph Conrad um, that was not concentrating on Conrad's relationship to empire. The theme pops up occasionally in the text of Joseph Conrad and the fiction of autobiography, but it is by no means a major theme. You've mentioned already the um, individuals that populate the Marx tradition that Said was interested in, names like Antonio Gramsci, Guri Lukash and Raymond Williams. I suppose I'm interested in or what he found useful about um, individuals within the Marx tradition who are situating themselves within that tradition without being within it himself? I think um, at different points in his career, Said was interested in um, Marxist writers or different Mar different Western Marxist writers. Again, we need to be clear about that. Said was never a Stalinist. He was never a member of the Communist Party. Having said that, he was also very highly attuned to the particular 
nasty and paranoid style of American anti-anti-communism, or, or sorry, of anti-communism. So he was an anti-anti-communist, if you, if you know what I'm trying to say. Um, he had no time at all for anti-communism, which he always saw as, um, uh, you know, having a hidden agenda and as, as, as um, a kind of uh, intellectual sleaziness. Um, Marxist writers that he was interested in, he was interested in Lukács, he was interested in Gramsci, he was interested in Raymond Williams, although I sometimes think he was interested in Raymond Williams at a stage of Williams's career before Williams maybe had fully confronted Marxism. So I think that for Said, the great Williams book, and obviously Williams wrote many books, and they were, they were, they were friends. I mean, they weren't close to each other, but they were personal friends and they corresponded. But the Williams book that I think Said invoked most often was The Country and the City, um, now maybe I'm just revealing my ignorance of Raymond Williams, but I mean Raymond Williams' you know, primary confrontation with Marxism comes in a book that's published in 1980. It doesn't mean that Marxist categories or interest in class or in rural and urban capitalism is not present in the country and the city. Um, late in life, um, Said, especially once he started to write about music, Said became very interested in Adorno. Um, uh, anyone trying to write about music in a sort of social historical way is probably going to have to confront Adorno at some point. Um, and without getting too melodramatic about it or too sentimental about it, I think as Said himself got older, faced a terminal disease, which he fought for 12 years, as the situation in Palestine, under the cover of an ostensible peace process, as the situation in Palestine got worse and worse and worse, and it has only worsened since he died. I think... Um, Adorno's sort of dramatization and living and writing about um, criticism in defeat, to put it bluntly, became important for him. Said was not going to be reconciled, and in Adorno he found, um, uh, you know, a kind of a, an example of that. Um, Said, I think, was well aware of the, you know, the political or activist limitations of a writer like Adorno, uh, but he still wanted to to learn from him. I have a personal theory um, uh, that I've written about and published about that um, history and class consciousness, uh, with its great central essay on uh, class consciousness and uh, reification, is uh, an essay um, and a thematic that is fundamental um, right through Said's career. For me, in um, now, I don't know what other people think about this, but I think I can argue this, and I, I can show you the publication where I did, did, try, did try to argue it. For me, from beginnings right up to culture and imperialism, Said executes a move at the beginning of his major books, which is one that, if you want, um, takes what I take to be the central message of that famous essay, that book-length essay, which is that the fundamental, the most powerful knowledge of capitalism, monopoly capitalism for, for Lukács, is going to be expressed in the knowledge and the class consciousness of those who are most degraded and in fact reified and objectified by capitalism, and that is the workers. The workers' knowledge of capital is in fact a potentially revolutionary knowledge that knows the system from the inside but has the potential to overturn it from within. And I think that kind of motif, maybe it is only a motif, um, and maybe it's a motif that ranges much further than Georg Lukács, but that motif of the um, potential insurrectionary knowledge of the downtrodden is something that you find in, the si in beginnings in a kind of theoretical way. 
You find it unquestionably in Orientalism. If you've read Orientalism, you'll remember this famous uh, kind of uh, introduction where Said actually quotes from Gramsci, where Gramsci says in the uh, prison notebooks that um, one of the first tasks, I think it is, that an intellectual needs to carry out is to um, uh, realize that the historical process has laid down um, a long set of traces in that critical intellectual. Um, and the first action that the critical intellectual needs to take to become a critical intellectual is to make an inventory of that set of traces. And then what does Said do? He writes on this enormous book, Orientalism, which in some ways is kind of Edward Said's inventory, if you want, of, the, um, uh, of his own Orientalization. It's not that Orientalism is, a, is an autobiographical book, but the autobiographical stakes are clearly very high. Uh, in a different kind of way, th there's a similar kind of Lukacian um, move made um, early on in, um, in the world of text and the critic, and in a different way again in, um, in culture and imperialism. Most powerfully, what I'm going to call this Lukacian move, appears in the lead essay of Said's most important political book, which is called The Question of Palestine. And the essay there, Zionism from the standpoint of its victims, seems to me to completely embody this kind of Lukacian move. Said is basically saying that any kind of knowledge produced of Zionism um, that really only tells Zionism's own story is only half the story. That the most, the most complete knowledge of, of, of Zionism is going to be produced uh, in, in, in a manner that retains the triumphalist narrative of Jewish Zionist success, state building, cultural restoration, education, expansion, whatever else, of Israel, but somehow at the same time tells the hidden, dark, hollow story of the people who were, if not destroyed, then certainly displaced in the making of the Israeli story. And with the implication that the most fundamental knowledge of Zionism is that of its victims, is of that, that of, of, of the people on the receiving end of uh, Zionist action, Zionist cultures, Zionist discourse. Um, with Williams, I think the interest particularly in uh, the culture in the city, um, but not only in the culture in the city, is Said actually identified with Williams's term cultural materialism at one point. So Said is very interested in a way that he takes from Williams, but also from an earlier figure that Williams was learning from as well, Gramsci, the idea of culture, cultural activity, cultural activism, cultural production, cultural organization um, as a material process in its own right, if you want, that has its own place within a capitalist economy and that is deeply implicated with a capitalist economy. And I think Said was particularly taken with Gramsci for the way that he thought that and suggested that idea. Said was also taken with Gramsci, of course, because of his famous um, interest in and uh, writing about intellectuals. Uh, I think um, if Edward Said was here, I don't think he would take umbrage at being described as both a traditional and an organic intellectual. Sometimes when we're teaching about um, Gramsci's theories of intellectuals, we talk, or I certainly I've found myself talking, as if traditional and organic intellectuals are these, you know, these siloed, separated categories a person fits one or fits the other but of course in fact these things are much more fluid and a person who might start or be at a certain point of their career an organic intellectual once he or she becomes part of the establishment then they're a traditional intellectual and part of Said's brilliance was that he could actually be a Tweedy part of the um, uh, Columbia establishment 
and yet, and therefore a traditional intellectual talking about, you know, romance philology, and yet with some other part of his activity or in another area of his, his, of his being, he could serve as a kind of organic intellectual at the same time. Um, so those ideas from Gramsci were very important for him too. Also the idea of hegemony, which I think that um, Said felt was ultimately more flexible and plastic and useful than Foucault's ideas about discursive domination uh, that emerge in Foucault in the 60s and then get reinflected with F uh, Foucault's more you know, overtly political work of the 70s on carceral institutions. Said often highlighted the way that Gramsci, whatever it was, you know, 50 years before Foucault, Gramsci showed how um, power or instruments of power or modes of delivery of power through a cultural apparatus could be productive and positive and affirming. Um, it was not all a matter of um, the laying down of a party line or of culture being viewed as a system of, 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 of propaganda um, or censorship or whatever. Um, the very fact that culture as, as a realm of activity, whether it's creative or critical, um, could be open, as I say, plastic, flexible, um, various and affirming, that actually is its road to power. And that is its road to hegemony, which is another word in a way for a kind of liberal conformism. And I think Said was very interested in that in, in, in Gramsci. In both Gramsci and Williams, uh, Said also was very interested in the um, ways that these thinkers think spatially or geographically. Um, Williams is very obviously very interested in, in a book like The Country, the, the country and the City. Williams is interested in, in, in the geographies um, of England and uh, how geography uh, shaped culture uh, and how um, the processes of the gradual um, um, the enclosure of the countryside and the growth of industrialization in the 19th century, how these issued in cultural representation and how, the, how cultural representation acted back on those things. But Said inevitably as, um, if you want, as somebody from the global south living in the belly of the beast in the great metropolis of New York um, also was inclined to think geographically as well. One of my, um, again, one of, one of the points that I would make critically of Said, and it was something that I felt when Culture and Imperialism came out when I was in graduate school in 1993, I was disappointed um, that on the one hand I had learned from Said's um, Yeats pamphlet for Field Day about um, a Marxist geographer, a Scottish Marxist geographer that Said clearly admired and possibly knew called Neil Smith. Neil Smith had produced uh, a book in 1984 called Uneven Development. And through reading a little bit about Neil Smith, I came to learn about other even more famous writers like Edward Soja or preeminently David Harvey. And it was clear from looking at Smith and Doreen Massey and Edward Soja, Soja was more post-structuralist, but nevertheless definitely on the left. Um, Smith, Soja, Harvey, that there was in the Anglophone world in the 1980s and the 1990s a definite flowering of a Marx-inflected and Henri Lefebvre-inflected Marxist political geography. And I thought that you know, if ever there was a part of the Marxist tradition that might have spoken to Edward, it would be this geographical tradition. And yet it just doesn't appear in culture and, culture and empirism at all. And I would have thought it would be immensely useful to, for him in thinking about um, 
about Palestine as well. But uh, you know, sometimes you have to uh, recognize something. You know, my initial reaction to cultural imperialism was a, at times a sense of disappointment. And then you also have to rec recognize that a writer is going to do his own thing and is entitled to do that too. Um, and you have to take that on board as well. So um, with Adorno, Adorno appears in the writing particularly after he starts to write about music. Um, uh, so in, um, um, I can't remember the name of the musical book now, Musical Elaborations, forgive me. Um, yes, Musical Elaborations is actually a kind of interesting book because although Adorno is a major presence, Gramsci remains a major presence as well. And although that book was three lectures given at Irvine in 1989, although the book is about classical music, there's also just below the surface of the text there's a kind of contest that Said is staging between Gramsci, who is this uh, you know this communist agitator, party organizer, organic intellectual, revolutionary, unquestionably, even though he spent too much of his life in jail. There's a contest between going on between Gramsci, who of course is a first generation Western Marxist, and a second or third generation Western Marxist like Adorno, for whom the revolution has proved to be impossible or to be even undesirable. Um, although, you know, we know that Adorno has a very strong sense of, um, uh, or too strong a sense of, um, you know, the importance of capital, the overwhelming nature of capital, the nature of domination in modern Western societies. But um, Adorno doesn't have, obviously, that's not an original thing to say, uh, Gramsci's revolutionary drive or impulse. Um, Adorno, as I said earlier, I think becomes important for Said as a kind of um, uh, uh, a little bit of a personal totem. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's a famous or notorious very late um, interview with Said conducted by an Israeli mainstream liberal journalist called Ari Shavit. Ari Shavit is a leading light of Haaretz, which is the Israeli Irish Times, if you want. So a respectable or notionally respectable but mainstream newspaper. And at the end of this interview, um, which was recorded in about 2002 or 2003, so at a point when Said was very ill, um, Said calls himself um, the last Jewish intellectual, the only true follower of Adorno. Now, some people might think that this was idiotic. Some people might think it was outrageous. Some people might think it was comical. I suspect that Said was clever enough to have a bit of a handle on all of those things. Um, but also, I think what he liked about Adorno was his recalcitrance, his resistance, his refusal, even if it was a non-revolutionary refusal, to be co-opted um, or to try not to be co-opted, to be a naysayer. And um, although Said at the end of his life was no longer capable of throwing stones across the border of Lebanon or anything like that. Um, the symbolism of being a naysayer, um, which I think is he, he does partly through his appropriation of Adorno, was clearly very important to him. By the 80s and 90s, the paradigm of literary criticism Said is the most, clo most closely associated with had, uh, for all intents and purposes, sort of triumphed. Um, the greater, there was an, a greater degree of awareness brought to the political content of, of works of literature. Now, you've actually kind of complicated that by bringing up Auerbach and the phenomenological school and maybe the influence of Heidegger. And this is a political aspect of literary criticism that isn't really captured in the transition from uh, Liebesism to 
uh, post-structuralism, mm. if you like. So what features of the late critical moment was Saeed ambivalent about? And more provocatively, what do you think he would make of the condition of literary criticism now? Um, I don't know what he'd make of literary criticism now, of academic literary criticism now. I'm sure he'd have nasty things to say about it, um, or sarcastic or ironic things to say about it. I think what Said was most concerned about um, with liter literary criticism of almost any kind, Said was well, very well prepared to um, admire um, uh, critics in schools who were quite far from his own interests or concerns. Um, he liked stylish writing. He obviously liked uh, critics who showed him something that he hadn't thought about before that he was going to learn from. He was open to that. I think what he was most worried about, and this applies to the post-colonial criticism of which he's often held to be the prophet, Said didn't like institutionalization. So once um, any ism had become an orthodoxy, Said lost interest in it and really had no um, uh, uh, sympathy with it anymore. So um, certainly, um, you know that that is a that reflects on remarks I've already made about what he said about academic Marxism. Now, it should be fairly said that you know, there are plenty of academic Marxists who, have, um, who are innovative and um, who have um, activist lives outside of the academy that quite frequently, I'm sure Edward Said wasn't paying sufficient attention to, and he was generalizing about academic Marxism. But he still has a point, I think, that, that basically when, you know, it's, it's a familiar kind of pattern. There's a new um, school of putatively radical literary criticism, um, and gradually um, it goes from being marginal in the profession and just the preserve of hungry and lean and um, um, resentful graduate students. As the, some of those graduate students actually get into the academy and get jobs, not that many of them, but as some of them do, then that ism may become institutionalized, it becomes institutionalized, it appears on curricula and syllabi, it appears in conferences, it appears in journals, it may get its own conferences and journals as those people's careers develop. Now maybe I'm just adopting an overly cynical or instrumental view of these things, but I think it's I think there's a strong element of truth in it. Um, so I think that it was very typical of Saeed to, um, let's say to, let's just say, it's not that he had a plan to do this, but to inaugurate um, colonial discourse analysis, as it's sometimes also called, with Orientalism, and then within a rather short time, abandon that redoubt and move off in the manner of a guerrilla, if you want, to some other critical, intellectual, um, fighting position, if you want. So even by the time, if Orientalism came out in 1978 and Cultural Imperialism came out in 1993, I think that um, uh, Orientalism was seen as being a pioneering and um, aggressive and polemical and exciting and extraordinarily fertile new book. The response to cultural imperialism was much more confused because I think a lot of Said's readers expected a new dose, a new spurt of energy into some new kind of radicalism. And in fact, what Said wasn't going to do was precisely that. His, the, in some ways, Said might have said that the radicalism, I'm using air quotes here or scare quotes, of cultural imperialism was precisely its faith to older models or schools of criticism. You know, not for Said, the latest, I mean, he was almost coming into the era of Agamben and biopolitics. 
almost. I'm, I'm, my cultural imperialism was a little bit before that. But no, Said was going to go back and um, rehearse and still seek value in um, the Romance philological tradition and in thinkers like um, like uh, Gramsci and Raymond Williams in particular. It's true that cultural imperialism is a, definitely a more materialist book without yet being a Marxist book than Orientalism was. And I sometimes think that the way that one of the, the impulses for Said to produce a more Williamsite and Gramscian book than a Foucauldian book um, with cultural imperialism is precisely maybe because he was realizing that the Oslo process was a sham, that the occupation in fact was um, exerting a firmer grip on the West Bank and Gaza than ever before. And simply, um, although at that point I don't think he'd been back to the West Bank, um, Said had a, a particularly strong sense of the materialities of occupation and domination, and that may have issued, if you want, a bit in cultural imperialism. It should also be said that um, uh, in the third chapter of cultural, cultural imperialism, which is an uneven and, you know, in some ways messy book, um, the heroes, he has a chapter on what he calls third world intellectuals, um, and the chapter on third world intellectuals is about four third world intellectuals. George Antonius, who was a, a, an Arab historian, um, C.L.R. James, who was a, a Trinidadian activist, cricket journalist, revolutionary, Trotskyist, um, uh, uh, and uh, all-round radical. And then uh, Ranaji Guha, who was a founder of the um, Indian uh, school um, of subaltern uh, historiography, and um, uh, I think a Malaysian writer called S.H. Alatas, who had written a book called uh, The Myth of the Lazy Native. And Said sets, an sets, up, sets up an opposition between Antonius and James on the one hand, who were writers who had their heyday really in the, probably in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and then Guha and Alatas, who were roughly speaking contemporaries of Said's own. And there's no doubt at all that Said's heart is with the earlier non-academic, less affiliated, less discursively channeled and regulated earlier writers who were definitely in touch with um, political movements outside of the academy if they had any lodgment in the academy at all. I don't think James ever did. I think uh, George Antonius might have. So um, Said was definitely well capable of um, uh, trying to self-consciously go against the flow. Um, he was not interested in fashion. Um, uh, and, you know, in a kind of, um, in some ways, a kind of stereotypical middle-aged, later middle-aged man kind of way, he wanted deliberately to go against the flow. But I think there is a certain kind of intellectual integrity to what he's doing as well, to be fair to him. And um, that comes out, as I say, in his wish to revisit, um, um, let's say, an early to mid-20th century set of radical traditions, rather than to take part in the... Um, traditions which have moved from recent radicalism to pure institutionalization in the United States Academy. So once post-colonial criticism became an orthodoxy, which unquestionably it is now, um, Said was going to lose interest in it. He wouldn't have want, want to have no part of it. By virtue of the Palestinian Liberation Organization being the more or less hegemonic political vehicle for the Palestinian cause, say, being an outspoken critic of Israel as well as an independent member of the Palestine National Council, Said would have been quite close with, with Yasser Arafat until yeah. a certain point in time. What was Said's vision for the future of Palestine? In what way or ways was it distinct from other factions in the movement? 
and what was it that prompted the ultimate break between Saeed and Arafat? I probably can't address this question quite as well as I would like to. Um, in his earliest writings about Palestine, uh, Saeed was definitely a proponent of a binational state. Um, that would be a state that would um, um, offer equal representation and uh, some kind of shared sovereignty between two um, national communities, Palestinian and Israeli or Jewish Israeli. Um, Said then in the uh, 1980s, and especially with the, um, uh, I think it was called the uh, Algiers Declaration in 1988, became an advocate for the two-state solution. He became an advocate for the two-state solution at a time when um, it might have seemed viable. Um, by the mid to late 1980s, um, the Israeli settlement drive um, in the West Bank and Gaza was really only just starting off. Um, Israel had taken control of the occupied territories in 1967, but the occupation and the settlement occupation didn't really become important until the Likud came to government in 1977 under Menachem Begin. So it was really in the wake of um, uh, 1977 that uh, a new version, or a probably potentially always there, but now visible version of what the occupation was going to be, swam into view. And uh, I think that Said would have advocated the two-state solution at a time when it might have been possible, or it might have seemed possible, to stop or to slow down that Israeli settlement process, which of course has gone on unabated ever since, in fact. So laterally, prices precisely because of that, because of the failures of Oslo, which I'll come to in a second, and because of the um, ongoing settlement process, which now has, I'd say, something between 700,000 and 800,000 Israeli settlers in the West Bank and in East Jerusalem. Um, because of that, Said went back to being a proponent of a one-state solution, not just a binational state, but a one-state solution, um, with no um, national recognition. The reason he would be he would have advocated this laterally is because simply the occupation, the settlement occupation, creates de facto a one-state solution on the ground, although, of course, Israel still puts up, you know, fences and barriers and, and um, other, other things to keep populations separate and apart. But the actual fact of people living on the ground is of the two populations of Palestinians and Israelis living for all of the war, ever more interpenetrated and um, uh, 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 imbricated lives with each other, albeit separated by practical walls and walls of hostility. Um, I think early on in his political writing and political career, Said, yes, was a, a, an advocate for the PLO. He defended the PLO and he defended Arafat. Um, it's important to say that the PLO is itself an umbrella organization, um, if you want, um, that within it um, has the more identifiable and ideologically separated political parties or factions or guerrilla groups. So within the PLO, there is um, FATA, which was Arafat's um, group. That's the mainstream nationalist group of which Mahmoud Abbas, Abbas would now be the leader. Um, but there are also the um, smaller left fractions like the PFLP and the DFLP. Um, and Said, according to Brennan's biography, um, although he never joined any of these groups as a party member, his friends were often Palestinian communists or, or leftists, and he identified um, to a considerable degree with the Palestinian left or even the far left. 
which is interesting to to read when we think back to his reactions to Marxism and such like and his criticism. Um, the disagreement with Oslo was basically that um, Said realized that uh, the Oslo Agreement was um, um, a product of Palestinian defeat and Palestinian weakness. The Oslo Agreement was negotiated by um, uh, people like Arafat and his, uh, uh, his confederates um, in secret uh, with the Israeli government in Oslo, obviously, um, uh, but in secret. Uh, and it was it was negotiated by um, a Palestinian leadership that had been many decades in 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 exile. They'd moved from living in in let's say in Amman in Jordan to Beirut. They got kicked out of these places and ended up in Tunisia. Um, uh, in other words, the Oslo agreements were negotiated. Side pointed out, and he was absolutely right. Side's writing about Oslo was prophetic. Almost everything that he predicted came to pass. But what Said realized was that it was the agreements were negotiated by a leadership that had no idea, no proper or educated idea of the nature of the facts on the ground. I remember reading um, Said's first critique of um, the Oslo process, which came out just after the um, uh, Declaration of Principles in the autumn of 1993. Said said, let's name this agreement for what it is, a Palestinian Versailles, an instrument of surrender. Now, Said had no illusions about you know, the Palestinian military capacity for violent resistance or for military resistance. But he nevertheless, I think, was probably right in saying that here was a Palestinian leadership, ostensible leadership, including guerrilla leaders, as it happened, who signed a treaty where they laid down their cause. They gave up their cause in a legal instrument. They gave up their cause also, crucially, they gave they they offered recognition of israel as the jewish state no israeli settlements were removed under the terms or could even be talked about barely under the terms of the of, of the oslo agreement um uh, uh palestinian you know rights to access to water were not particularly uh, changed or or, or 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 altered by the uh, the oslo treatment the, the oslo treaty um, or Oslo agreements. Uh, um, the, the the point I, su I suppose for Said was that the Oslo Accords were were negotiated by a leadership team, as I said a minute ago, that really did not that apparently didn't even have 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 decent up to date maps of the territories about which they were negotiated. You know, Said always described Zionism as a discipline of detail, as a political tradition that um, was phenomenally intellectually, in its own terms, intellectually rich, rigorous educated, thoughtful, um, research-based, um, the intellectual resources of Zionism for its own causes in its own terms were very formidable. The Palestinians had nothing to match it. And therefore the Israelis knew the territories better than the Palestinians did themselves. So Said came out very early and rejected the Oslo Accords. He was invited to the White House to take part in the famous handshake um, in the Rose Garden or wherever it was between um, uh, Rabin and Arafat being shepherded together by, by Bill Clinton. Um, Said said that the photographs of this were photographs of American vassals making peace with each other under the happy and um, watchful eyes of the, of the emperor. Um, 
side was 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 unremitting in his hostility to Oslo, and the results of that were were fairly quick. Sides um, um, political books were banned um, in the um, parts the uh, parts of the, the 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 occupied territories that became ostensibly governed by um, by Fatah and by the Palestinian Authority, and Said himself broke off um, uh, his uh, his relationship, um, if not friendship, I don't think it was ever a close friendship with Arafat. Um, there would have been some personal animus to this because Said had expended, again, this is revealed in a lot of detail and it's, it's extremely interesting in Tim Brennan's biography, Said had spent a lot of time in the 70s and the 1980s trying to bring um, new um, ideas about um, uh, liberation, revolution, development and such like to the Palestinian leadership, whether it was in uh, Tunisia or whether it was in Beirut. Um, Said even brought at one point um, Frederick Jameson to come and talk to the Palestinians, Palestinian leadership. Um, in other words, what I'm trying to say is that um, Said was very keen to try to um, inject the Palestinian leadership with um, a sense of um, intellectual resources, to alert them to um, intellectual and political and social forces that were sympathetic to them in the United States. Said always used to say that the Palestinian leadership and the Arab leaderships generally really are only interested in people at the very top of the um, American political system. They think that all politics can be fought out and decided there. And obviously the American political system has a hierarchy and it has very powerful you know, leaders and elites. Um, but there is also a politics of civil society that can be developed. And I'd say it's really only with Said now gone, um, you know, a campaign like the BDS campaign led by Omar Barghouti um, is something much more along the lines of the kind of civil society activism in the United States in the Palestinian cause that Said might have thought about. Although I'd also have to say, as an outrider to that, I'm not exactly sure what he would have thought about boycott. And that's something that we might speculate about. Having accomplished something like a, like a break from the mainstream Palestinian support network, what was Said's relationship to the movement for Palestinian liberation between the Oslo Accords and the, the year he died? Uh, it was one of, um, well, the evidence most obviously is, 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 is one of um, a kind of Swiftian apoplexy and fury. That's what comes out most notoriously and most famously, but also at times very brilliantly in the writing. Um, uh, so you get this kind of volcanic production of political essays and journalism through the 1990s. If the Oslo Accords are signed in 1993, Said dies in um, September 2003, um, and the volume of, of, of political writing that he produced at that time is um, phenomenal given that he was a sick man and he was working on other projects as well. Um, I don't know if he ever set out a really clear or specific um, image of the kind of Palestine that he would have wanted to um, have or that he would have wanted to see having. You know, I don't know if he wanted to have Palestine, but that he would have wanted to see come into being. Certainly, um, he was enough of a mainstream liberal to wish to uh, see um, a, a democratic Palestine, to see a, pal a Palestine that would be ruled um, not by um, a, a centralized um, or cultified um, or occulted, as he might have said, leadership. He was not interested in uh, any kind of, um, you know, 
cult of Arafat or anything else. Um, he would have wanted um, uh, human rights to be uh, recognized. He would have wanted um, uh, dialogue to take place uh, with Israeli cultural figures and intellectuals. Um, uh, he was well involved in such dialogue himself, even if it was, and I'd say with him it probably often was, highly abrasive and uh, unforgiving discussion, but the discussion had to happen. Um, but the kinds of discussions that he was able to sponsor between, say, the Israeli New Historians and Palestinian historians or Palestinian intellectuals, those discussions, while interesting and valuable in themselves, they weren't really going to have a major kind of political effect. Um, so, um, yeah, I can't really say much more about the kind of you know, political formation that he would have wanted to see come into being. Certainly, we know what he rejected. He, he rejected vassalage. He wanted a just peace. He wanted any kind of Palestinian polity to have some kind of sovereignty. Um, it was always going to be, and it will be if it ever emerges, um, you know, profoundly weaker than the polity of which it is a neighbor. Um, but that doesn't preclude the existence of um, a polity, a polity of laws. Um, uh, so, yeah, I think that's probably about as much as I can say about what he would have envisaged as an ideal emergent um, political system. How has Said been remembered after his death and is his work, in your view, and in the view of others, still relevant for the future of literary criticism and or the imperialist politics. It's hard to know exactly how he's thought about now. I mean, un un unquestionably, he is, um, he's now a canonical figure. As a, as a literary critic, he's a canonical figure. Um, uh, I don't get to teach, um, as it happens, um, uh, Said's criticism in my, my work as a, as a, as a college lecturer. Um, I can imagine that um, without doing any disservice or any particular disservice to my peers or colleagues, I can imagine that Orientalism is taught as probably, you know, a first-generation book of post-colonial literary, literary criticism that maybe has been succeeded or superseded by not just one at this point, but maybe by a couple of generations um, of scholarship since. Um, succeeded by Spivak and Baba, although to be fair to them, they were also just taking their criticism in different directions from Said. Um, the biopolitical sort of move, um, I'm sure there's a lot of really interesting post-colonial environmentalist or eco-critical -criti work now. Um, there was in the 1990s maybe in particular, there was a kind of uh, move in post-colonial criticism to return to an interest in um, in Marxist criticism, um, and that was sponsored by people like Tim Brennan, by Benita Parry, by Neil Lazarus, by Neil Larson, by Joe Cleary, indeed. Um, uh, and uh, personally, I'd have a lot of sympathy with that um, uh, strand of thinking. These were people who were um, maybe prepared to be a little bit more forgiving of Said than Ahmed had been, um, but uh, who, you know, nevertheless wanted to um, bring criticism closer into relation with, with political economy. Um, I think Said's legacy is, in some ways, this may sound very bland, but I think in some ways his legacy is, I may also sound like kind of hero worship, but it is in some ways that of an example. Here was someone who um, could absorb 
uh, certainly um, for his own generation, a body of um, at least putatively radical thought from Europe, um, and turn it to um, uh, to political purposes, indeed, uh, to productive purposes. Someone who was interested in the history of literature and of culture, but um, who was uh, well capable of writing as the most you know dense and subtle formalist himself, if he wished to. Didn't always wish to. Sometimes he could be unsubtle, but maybe he thought there were places where it was important in some ways to be unsubtle. Little Klumpers Denken. Um, so for me, um, Side is sort of an exemplar of 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 someone who was an intellectual, but who also tried to think very hard about what it meant to be an intellectual. And he was someone who was convinced that um, an intellectual could um, make her career or his career um, within the academic institution. But I think that what was important for him about that making of a career or a set of positions within the institution, what was important was also how those positions within the academy had a relationship to positions or activities or institutions or forces or groups of people outside of the academy. Said's sort of term for that would be worldliness, I think. You know, the idea that a theory or a set of ideas um, will always risk um, losing touch with its object or with its goals if it becomes something that is principally for use in a classroom or if it becomes something that is principally for outlefting your colleagues on a particular journal or at a particular conference. Um, Said was good at pointing that kind of thing out in others and I think a lot of the time, probably not all the time, he was quite good at resisting it himself um, for all his, in some ways, old-fashionedness and creepiness as well. Just in finishing up, you might speak to how you first encountered Said's work and in what specific ways it spoke both to you as well as where literary criticism in Ireland, post-colonial criticism specifically, was coming from at that time. You mentioned Field Day, and of course, yeah. this would have been around the time that the long war in the north would have been moving towards a terminus. I first encountered Said when I was uh, at the end of my undergraduate degree in Trinity, um, and I'd heard about this book called Orientalism. And um, once I looked at Orientalism, I began to realize, of course, that this was and this is only one angle on Orientalism, but it is a real angle. It was a study of stereotypes, and I began to realize that a study of stereotypes, and Said, of course, was not the only scholar of stereotypes. And lots of other people have done this. But it would have you know, immediate and obvious applications to Ireland and Irish culture, or Ireland and Irish culture vis-a-vis -vis the offshore power. Um, uh, and that relevance, if you want, was, was, was very clear to me. Then, to be pedantic and boring and self-indulgent, I began to read Said um, as a gloss on other writers that I thought I was more interested in, like Foucault and Gramsci in particular. And Said wrote very clearly about Foucault and Gramsci. What I didn't, of course, initially realize, although it's obvious now, is that Said has his own angle on you know, Gramsci and Foucault. Said's Foucault is not necessarily everyone's Foucault. And it took me a longer time to start to read Said for himself. The book that for me was electrifying was The World, the Text and the Critic, which I've said in various places I consider to be uh, a manual for intellectual insurrection. I, think, I still think it's a magnificent book. And I read 
both Orientalism and the world of text from the critic during my MA year in UCD, which was 1919-1991. There were a couple of things that were going on um, at that time. Said was in the media an awful lot because of the Iraqi occupation uh, of Kuwait and then the ensuing American-led war to eject Iraq from Kuwait. And Said was one of the most prominent uh, dissenting voices on the necessity of this war. Not that Said had any sympathy for Saddam Hussein or his tyrannical regime, he didn't. But he thought that war might be avoided. And he didn't like the way that um, Arab culture was being talked about in the American gung-ho mainstream media. But also in UCD, I was fortunate enough in that year um, to be taught by um, three particularly important um, critics in the Irish context. And they would have been Thomas Doherty, who uh, ran my uh, the, the NA program in which I was participating, Declan Kybridge and Seamus Dean. Declan Kybridge and Seamus Dean, um, along with David Lloyd, have probably been the most important um, introducers of post-colonial thinking into Irish studies. I suppose that Kybird and Lloyd did that most overtly with their books like Inventing Ireland and Anomalous States. Um, but an interest in the history of colonialism and its pertinence to Ireland was subtended most of Dean's writing as well. As it happens, Seamus Dean is the Irish critic who has written most brilliantly about Edward Said, who was a personal friend of his. Dean wrote four superb essays on Said. Um, so what I'm trying to get at is that, on the one hand, I was in an MA program by which I was enormously excited, which uh, revealed to me um, the what I considered at the time the political possibilities of the study of literature. I was being taught this by Irish critics who were convinced of that importance at the same time. And I was really discovering Said seriously while a major war was taking place. It's awful that these things come back to war in the Middle East at the time. So Edward Said could not have seemed more relevant to me, both in an, an Irish context and in a, a global context. Um, so I suppose I would have, I would consider myself to have learned many things from Said. I mean, I would confess freely that um, my coming to try to read and struggle with Adorno, um, who is a writer I find fascinating, although I make no claim to having a really decent understanding of him because it's so damn difficult, but I would probably have come to that by reading musical elaborations where Said you know, discusses um, a substantial tranche of, of, of Adorno's work. And of course, he doesn't actually discuss the major philosophical texts. He's writing about Adorno and music, so there's no treatment of negative dialectics or the aesthetic theory or the dialectic of enlightenment. Um, but I have come to various interests of my own um, through Said. Um, I'm interested in cultural geography. I came to that through reading Edward Said. What I would say, and again, I hope this won't seem as self-indulgent, is that I didn't come to Palestine activism, which is something I do as well, through Edward Said. Although I have read his writing about Palestine, but um, funnily enough, um, it was other writers about the Middle East that, um, as I would say, lifted the scales from my eyes about what was happening in Israel-Palestine. Writers like Alexander Coburn, Christopher Hitchens, and Noam Chomsky in particular. Um, I came to Saeed's writing about Palestine after the literary criticism and liked it and enjoyed it, but it was, it was, it was a, a later thing. I read Saeed as a, as a literary critic first, albeit a very political or apparently very political literary critic. Um, 
yeah, to go back to things I was saying a moment ago, I think that Saeed's status as an exemplar, um, as someone who tried, I think, to not to establish orthodoxies, though of course there are orthodoxies surrounding him, even if it can't, if that kind of thing can't be resisted, he wanted to to resist it. And I also think that Saeed's variousness, um, his willingness. So this is this is of course is one of the definitions of what an intellectual is. Said had no compunction about suddenly popping up and writing a book about music. It's not that he didn't know anything about music and he had a musical background, but he wasn't a professional musicologist. He wasn't a scholar of Adorno. He wasn't a scholar of Brahms or Wagner. But, you know, he, 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 he was very good, I think, at taking the kind of um, intellectual or cultural capital that he had achieved with books, let's say, early career books like the Conrad book and Beginnings, and then taking that capital and wagering it or putting it into some new relationship with a new zone or area of activity, political activity, other kinds of cultural activity, like with music, or writing, as I say, a memoir, or writing you know, an extraordinary and marvellous and beautiful book um, that he made with um, the great Swiss photographer Jean Moore, After the Last Sky, which is a collection of Moore's brilliant photographs of Palestinian refugees in various parts of the Middle East with a very non-polemical, non-academic, meditative, if I have that word correctly, um, commentary or, or, or text by Said. Said had many registers, which I think is a sign of a fine writer. He could write academic prose, he could write accessible academic prose, he could write vituperative political polemic, he wasn't above coarseness. I mean, famously, or I think notoriously, I think I was reading a review about this today in, 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 in Tim Brennan's biography, Said told his friends before he was going into a public debate with Bernard Lewis that he was going to fuck his mother. You know, Said was not, cap was not incapable of being brutal in situations where he thought it was necessary. Um, but he had many intellectual and literary registers, as I say, so he could write a kind of Proustian memoir of his childhood or he could write this beautiful meditative prose about the, f the fate of the Palestinians in After the Last Sky, or he could write what I still think is a very fertile and interesting essay on the geography of, of, of Mansfield Park. For all that people have revised or critiqued his essay on Mansfield Park, that's the fate of a writer like Said. So he could do many things, and I think that adaptability and that will to be active on many fronts. Of course, it comes partly with his success and his prestige. You know, it's easy for, a, or it's easier, and for most of us, it's easier for a very successful Columbia professor to just meet Daniel Barenboim in the lobby of the Met and set up a beautiful orchestra for Arab and Israeli musicians. Most of us can't do that. But I'm still glad that Edward Said could take his capital, as I say, and his energy, and try to do that. I think that's a really interesting thing to do, and I think that will towards newness and variousness is exemplary in him. And when you look at some of his peers or his near peers or rivals, not to make completely unfair comparisons, when you look at what Homo Baba has done since he produced The Location of Culture in 1994, I think Edward Said comes very well out of those comparisons.